great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and corrects them. These words were spoken by former President George W. Bush at the African American Museum 13 years after he signed a bill to build it. Yet, some of the country's most powerful politicians are descendants of slaveholders. They refuse to acknowledge slavery's lasting impact on the descendants of those their ancestors once enslaved. Why? Are they trying to hide their history? In the 17th session of the series, Time for the Nations to Reap, we will look at the large percentage of families with slaveholding ties now serving in elected positions. Is there a bloodline connection? This was the family place right about here? Right about here. We're in Portsmouth, Virginia, with black history scholar Cassandra Newby Alexander. Jesse Brownlee owned three slaves. Remember that name, Brownlee. Slaveholding was quite common here, says Newby Alexander. In Virginia, about 50% of the population owned slaves. Democratic Congresswoman Julia Brownlee grew up in Virginia. The only African-American black individuals that I knew were the women that worked in my house who would uh, clean and iron and cook some. Brownlee's worldview has evolved dramatically since then. The self-described pragmatic progressive was recently informed that several generations ago, her forebearers were slaveholders. On the one hand, I wasn't too surprised. On the other hand, when they said your great-great-grandfather had two slaves and a child slave, that really hit me really hard. It hit me very, very hard. Through public documents and family records, a Reuters examination discovered at least 100 members of the last sitting Congress had direct family ancestors who were slaveholders. More than a quarter of Republicans, 8% Democrats. So, too, every living American president except Donald Trump. When you learned that, did it surprise you? Not at all. Power is something that's often inherited, and so is privilege. And those who owned enslaved people were privileged people. Not privileged, the enslaved. Congressman Gregory Meeks has sought his family's past for years. Records are sparse or non-existent. I want to know now who was that person or people that was able to survive the horrific slave trade. How did they survive, you know, being whipped uh, and chained uh, in, in slavery? The connection to slavery seems more than an interesting historical footnote. Yet when contacted by Reuters for a response, 67 of the 100 congresspeople who are direct descendants of slaveholders had nothing to say, offered no reply. It tells me that either they're ashamed or they don't care. So we're looking at the bloodline as we focus on the nations involved in the European slave trade. Are they different people or the same people? This information from Statista says the country's most active, most active, 
in the transatlantic slave trade. Portugal leads the way. The UK is not far behind. Then France, the Netherlands, Spain, the United States, and Denmark. And we also had other countries on the list that we've already covered. Who are they really? And how are they connected? So the Reuters report found that five living presidents, two Supreme Court justices, 11 governors, and 100 legislators descend from ancestors who enslaved black people. According to Reuters, this is America's family secret and few are willing to talk about their ties to America's original sin. Why are they calling it a family secret? Ancestral ties to slaveholders have been documented previously for a handful of leaders, including Biden, Obama, and McConnell. Scholars and journalists have also extensively examined slavery and its legacy, including how the North profited from the institution and the role slavery played in decisions of past political leaders during the formation of America and after emancipation. But the Reuters examination is different. It focuses on the most powerful U.S. office holders of today, many of whom have staked key positions on policies related to race. It reveals for the first time in breadth and in detail the extent of those leaders ancestral connections to what's commonly called America's original sin, and it explores what it may mean for them to learn in personal, specific, and sometimes graphic ways the facts behind their own kin's part in slavery. Six more than 100 current American politicians come from ancestors who once held slaves. That's according to a new report out from Reuters. Yeah, this is really interesting. And uh, five of those politicians are right here in office in our state. Teresa Bowles has more on who's included in that report and why advocates are saying it really matters today. Right, Teresa? Yeah, we're talking senators, representatives, Supreme Court justices, and even presidents. The president of the Georgia NAACP saying this report highlights history that needs to be addressed as it speaks volumes about American politics astounding to some, validation to others. Not shocked, but still surprised um, that the sheer number of elected officials that have uh, ancestry that draws back to um, slaveholders. And so it's, it's very concerning. Georgia NAACP President Gerald Griggs says it makes sense that a Reuters investigation found that Governor Brian Kemp and current Georgia representatives Austin Scott, Drew Ferguson, Buddy Carter and Rick Allen all made the list as direct descendants of slave owners, all of them six or less generations removed. They can't help who they related to, uh, but many of the leaders on this list, their strong conservative uh, values and their beliefs 
are in line with their ancestry. The report also shows that Representative Rick Allen's family owned 133 slaves, the second highest on the list of 118 total American politicians. Allen won an award from the American Conservative Union Foundation five years ago. This is shameful history, but um, this history still has a great impact on the conditions, the experiences of people of African descent. For Morehouse College Africana Studies professor Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, these are decision makers that cannot afford to be swayed by how they were raised. I have a great deal of influence in terms of what occurs, what laws are passed, uh, what issues are focused on in this country. Rick says he has plans to offer a sit-down with each of these politicians to see what they're aligned with. He says the Reuters report shows why education about slavery is so important for schools as we are less removed from it than we think. Acknowledge the damage that was done, apologize for the damage that was done, and move forward in a way that brings Georgia together. I reached out to representatives for every current Georgia politician on this list. So far, no response. Okay, so we're talking about Georgia, but nationally, what about our current president or former presidents? So right now, every living president, former and current, yeah. also descends from families who own slaves, except for former President Donald Trump. Okay, Teresa, thanks a lot for that insight. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ron. Mm -hmm. Now listen to this information, and you tell me how is this possible? All U.S. presidents are related. All, all but one U.S. president are directly related to each other. So this 12-year-old was doing genealogy research and she came up with a list of the United States presidents and discovers that all of them are related. In her thorough research, which involved over 500,000 names through history, her aim was to find the ancestry of all U.S. presidents and see if there was a presidential atom that connected all of them. To everybody's surprise, she discovered that 42 of 43 U.S. presidents trace back to the single person John Lackland Plantagenet. King of England. Hmm. So the article says, if you are familiar with the theories about the Illuminati or the ruling elite families that govern the world, it may not come to a big surprise to find that all United States presidents, with the exception of one, including the Bushes, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, and even Barack Obama, happen to be cousins and that all of them are descendants of King John of England. Now that's interesting family. The only president that she couldn't connect in the lineage was Martin Van Buren, the eighth president of the United States. As for the others, this means that they are not only descendants of King John of England, but also distant cousins of Elizabeth, the Queen of England, and the British royal family. Now you all, you all, this is where they'll call you a conspiracy theorist, but is it a conspiracy or a need 
to hide the bloodline of the elite. Let's look at this information from Columbian College of Arts and Sciences, and it's regarding a book called The Demon's Brood. I actually saw a documentary about it, and I can tell you that a lot of strange and wicked things happened during the reign of the Plantagenets. So it says the Plantagenets were the magnificently colorful family of kings who ruled England between 1152 and 1485 and ended by destroying themselves in the bloodbath known as the Wars of the Roses. Their odd name means broom plant derived from an ancestor's habit of wearing a sprig in his hat as a badge, so they say. But just why, you may ask, should any American care to read about these foreign rulers of long ago? The answer is, of course, that they belong as much to the American heritage as they do to the English. Countless, um, countless Americans have forebears who came from England, so that there is more English DNA here than any other, including Native American. And these forebears brought a lot of their ancient inheritance with them. Nobody can deny that not only the language of Americans, but their law was shaped during the Plantagenet period. Magna Carta from King John's reign is no less of a milestone here in the evolution of human rights than it is in England. And a copy is kept in Washington. Let's listen to this from House of Names. It's talking about the Plantagenet history, family crest, and coat of arms. The name Plantagenet was brought to England in the great wave of migration following the Norman conquest of 1066. The name Plantagenet is for a gardener, as the name was originally derived from the old English word plant, meaning plant or young tree. Can we see the association to plantation? It says the surname Plantagenet was first found in London, where they held a family seat, being descended from Falk, the Count of Anjou, whose descendants were exemplified by the Emperor Henry V of Germany. Geoffrey Plantagenet, Count of Anjou, was the father of Henry II of England. Henry ascended the, the English throne and thus began the Plantagenet dynasty. He bore the three royal lines, which continued until the time of Edward III, who added a crest of another lion. So let's talk about America's family secret. We want to look at the bloodline of the enslavers in this nation. Let's take a look at this article from People.com entitled, New Database Reveals All the U.S. Congressmen Who Own Slaves, Including Those Seen as Progressive. So the Washington Post has chronicled 1,715 former members of Congress who were slave owners at some point in their lives. It says a new Washington Post database detailing all of the members of Congress who were slave owners offers insight into how history 
has at times celebrated those who owned other humans as property, some of whom served as recently as the 20th century. So this article is going to tell us that slavery was deeply rooted among the wealthy families and they were most likely to send someone to Washington. It says one lawmaker, Representative John T.H. Worthington, was listed as being the enslaver of 29 people in the 1840 census while he was representing the Baltimore area of the House, the Post reports. Worthington at one point sold his own enslaved daughter to a man looking for a slave to bear his children. The price was $1,800. Do we even want to ask why this man was looking for a slave to bear his children? Let's keep going. It says Senator Rufus King, for instance, is noted as an anti-slavery activist in the country's early history. Yet in 1810, the Post reports King himself owned a slave. Even after Reconstruction, people who had previously been slaveholders continued to serve in Congress, sometimes well into the 20th century. Suffragist Rebecca, Rebecca Latimer Felton, the Post database notes, was the first woman to ever serve in the Senate when she was appointed to fill a vacancy in Georgia in 1922. Felton, then 87, was a former slaveholder. And hopefully we are aware that women were slave owners as well. We'll look at some information about that in a minute. It says, America's history of slavery has increasingly led activists to call for reparations for black Americans. These advocates say that the institution of slavery has led to inequality that persists to this day, pointing to studies like one by the research group Brookings Institute, which said in a 2020 briefing that the average white family holds about 10 times the wealth, 10 times the wealth, you all, as the average black family today. Have you ever wondered why there has never been a push for reparations from this former president? Listen to this from Atlanta Black Star. America has compensated other groups, but Obama opposes reparations for black people. Why? Good question. Listen to how Mitch McConnell responded when he was asked about his ancestors' role as slave owners. He said, I find myself once again in the same position as President Obama. We both opposed reparations and we both are the descendants of slave owners. Is it now making sense to you? why so many of those in important decision-making positions are descended from those who enslaved our ancestors. Why can't they seem to acknowledge the damage that was done to the people they enslaved? Is it because they are all connected to the same bloodline? Now let's circle back to the point about female slave owners. 
This comes from History.com. The title is The Massive Overlooked Role of Female Slave Owners. It's estimated that 40% of slave owners may have been white women. So it says most Americans know that George Washington owned enslaved people at his Mount Vernon home. But fewer probably know that it was his wife, Martha, who dramatically increased the enslaved population there. When they wed in 1759, George may have owned around 18 people. Martha, one of the richest women in Virginia, owned 84. The high number of people Martha Washington owned is unusual but the fact that she owned them is not. Stephanie E. Jones Rogers, a history professor at the University of California, Berkeley, is compiling data on just how many white women owned slaves in the U.S. and in the parts of the 1850 and 1860 census data she's studied so far, White women make up about 40% of all slave owners. That's pretty significant, you all. So the author of this book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South, says slave-holding parents typically gave their daughters more enslaved people than land. She says what this means is that their very identities as white Southern women are tied to the actual or the possible ownership of other people. She says white women were active and violent participants in the slave market. They bought, sold, managed, and sought the return of enslaved people in whom they had a vested economic interest. Owning a large number of enslaved people made a woman a better marriage prospect. Once married, white women fought in courts to preserve their legal ownership over enslaved people as opposed to their husband's ownership and often won. For them, slavery was their freedom. Jones Rogers observes in her book. So this book, They Were Her Property, it says upends a lot of older scholarship. For example, previous scholars have argued that most Southern white women didn't buy, sell, or inflict violence on enslaved people because this was considered improper for them. But Jones Rogers argues that white women were actually trained to participate from a very young age. Listen, it says white women also fought to maintain the wealth and free labor that slavery provided them through the Civil War. As Union troops made their way through the South, freeing enslaved people, white women would move enslaved people farther from the soldier's path. One woman, Martha Gibbs, even took enslaved people to Texas and forced them to work for her at gunpoint until 1866, a year after slavery's formal abolition. After the Civil War, 
Southern white women sought to recreate slavery through exploitative work contracts. Some also wrote books portraying the institution of slavery as gentle and benign, the most famous being Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, a woman born 35 years after abolition. Yet, as Jones Rogers argues in her book, it was not only white women's ideological and sentimental connections to slavery that made them defend it. Scarlett O'Hara would have been protecting her economic interests, too. So I want to look at some things in this journal article entitled No Such Thing as Capitalism or Socialism. All societies have always been and continue to be caste systems. So it says using the analytical tools of social sciences and statistical data while historicizing, I document that all societies in every epoch or era have been and continue to be caste systems legitimized by various ideologies. There is no such thing as capitalism or socialism, only a caste system hidden behind capitalist ideology. So let's read some of this. It says one indicator of who rules society is who is required to pay the bills. Rulers outsource such obligations to the oppressed, making the tax code an indicator of power relations. During direct democracy in ancient Athens, rich families were required to finance military ships, major public works, and so on as a form of tax for the public good. In contrast, during feudalism, aristocrats were exempt from the king's taxation and free labor requirements that applied only to serfs. For an aristocrat to be taxed would have been considered insulting. Leona Helmsley continued this tradition. She had a reputation for tyrannical behavior, earning her the nickname Queen of Mean. Because of the brazen nature and public awareness of her tax evasion, she was symbolically prosecuted. During her trial, a former housekeeper testified that she had heard Helmsley say, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. Interesting. It says, as if minuscule taxation was not enough, elites evaded altogether through illegal means, typically offshore tax havens. Continuing, it says historical groups of nobles acting as the ruling caste, headed by either a sovereign or an oligarchy abound. There are also numerous times when the clergy have acted as the ruling caste, ranging from the medieval papal states to contemporary Iran. Historical examples of military dictatorships similarly abound. It says caste systems are composed of three generic groups, ruling, noble, and oppressed. Ruling, noble, and oppressed. The oppressed group is composed of subcaste, privileged labor, required labor, precarious labor, 
and slaves. It says in 1086 England, these groups were the kings and his relatives. This is the ruling caste. These would be the descendants of the king or the king and his relatives, I should say. The nobility and the oppressed. Now listen, it says, in reality, the holdings of feudal elites have been transferred to their modern day descendants. So the same people who had all the money still control the money. Still control the money. It says more than a third of Britain's land is still in the hands of a tiny group of aristocrats. According to the most extensive ownership survey in nearly 140 years, in a shock to those who believe the landed gentry were a dying breed, blue-blooded owners still control vast swaths of the country within their inherited estates. I hope you all caught that. The top 10 individual biggest owners control a staggering total of more than a million acres between them. So the figures have been uncovered by the Who Owns Britain report by Country Life magazine. And this is thought to be the most extensive survey of its type undertaken since 1872. It goes on to talk about the ruling caste. It says the postmodern ruling caste in the United States is in actuality an oligarchy numbering between 20 to 400 people. The true kings, though, are the 20 wealthiest people, about the same number that ruled in feudal England of 1086. So it goes on to name some folks like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Bill Gates, and others. And then it says their level of political power equals that of ancient emperors and absolute monarchs. They are the political system as per the proclamation of King Louis Fourteenth when he said, I am the state. So according to one well-publicized study, multivariate analysis indicates that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. So you wonder why certain agendas move forward, like sending billions to certain nations with little regard for what's going on in America. They are supporting their own interests. This is the shadow government that so many make reference to. So how did it all begin? Well, if you listened to the last session, you will remember that Great Britain brought slavery to America. This American dream was a continuation of what was going on in their mother country. Let's look at this article from virginiahistory.org and it's entitled 1623 to 1763, 
Virginia and the planter class. It says Governor William Berkeley set out to imitate the society of inequality of wealth. They already knew it was an inequality of wealth and education that he knew in England. By the late 1660s, he had succeeded in creating a small governing elite. Berkeley recruited from England both younger sons with no inheritance and supporters of the king who were fleeing a civil war. He promoted them to lucrative offices and granted them large estates. They established an upper class made up of powerful families that became dynasties. They utilized slave labor to cultivate tobacco until after the American Revolution, they in effect ruled Virginia. It says the middle and lower class families, the vast majority of the population have been long forgotten. So where did they get their marching orders? It came from the monarch of their homeland. Its sovereignty, Great Britain's sovereignty, extended to this nation. They didn't establish a new monarch here. And that's why some say America is really a corporation, not a sovereign nation. Let's look at this information from Cambridge University Press. It's entitled, Is the U.S. Government a Corporation? the corporate origins of modern constitutionalism. It says the U.S. Constitution is best understood not as a social contract, but as a popularly issued corporate charter. The earliest American colonies were literal corporations of the crown, and like all corporations, were ruled by limited governments established by their charters. From this, Americans derived their understanding of what a constitution is, the written charter of a sovereign that ordains and limits a government. The key Federalist innovation was to substitute the people for the king as the chartering sovereign. This effectively transferred the governance, governance technology of the corporation to the civil government, including the practice of delegating authority via a written charter, charter amendment, and judicial review. Federalists use these corporate practices to frame a government that united seeming irreconcilables, a government energetic yet limited, Republican yet mixed, popular yet anti-populist, yielding a corporate solution to the problem of arbitrary rule. Leading founders considered this new government a literal chartered corporation of the people. Now, if you are paying attention at all to what's happening in this nation, you know full well that the so-called people are not ruling this nation. Millions are being sent to fight wars that the people never agreed to. 
Who's really in charge here? Certainly not the politicians. They're merely puppets. Let's go on and read some excerpts from this article from NPS.gov. It's talking about the rise of the colonial plantation system. Now keep that word plantation in mind and think of Plantagenet. Let's keep going. In 1606, King James I created the Virginia Company of London. Its goal was to establish colonies in the New World. As a joint stock company, it sold shares to raise money. Jamestown was the first successful colony. Surviving in a new environment was hard. Severe drought had, had stressed food supplies for everyone. So it says the winter of 1609 to 1610 is known as the starving time. Food shortages, weak leadership, and attacks by the Powhatan killed two out of every three colonists. Those that survived struggled with diseases like dysentery and typhoid. It says it became hard to recruit settlers to go to the Virginia Company. So instead of offering shares, listen, the Virginia Company of London offered land. Any adult male who could pay their own way to Virginia was promised 50 acres of land. They were given the land of the native people. They also encouraged new investors to assemble a group of settlers and start a plantation away from Jamestown. These settlements, called hundreds, were allowed more self-government. They were controlled by the Virginia Company's chief manager in Jamestown. They were meant to support 100 heads of households. So listen. It says, establishing a colony was not the only goal of the Virginia Company of London. It also wanted to make money. There were no flowing rivers of gold and jewels like the colonists believed. Instead, glassmaking, pitch and tar production, and beer and wine making allowed them to use natural resources. But this was not enough. So John Rolfe, Pocahontas's husband, had introduced tobacco from the Caribbean in 1610. After Pocahontas died in England in 1617, he returned to Virginia and became a member of the council. He also sat as a member of the House of Burgesses, the first legislative assembly of elected representatives. By 1617, tobacco exports to England totaled 20,000 pounds. In 1619, the General Assembly began requiring tobacco inspections and mandating the creation of port towns and warehouses. These requirements helped major settlements like Norfolk, Alexandria, and Richmond to develop by the end of the century. By 1620, exports had risen to 50,000 pounds. In 1624, 
the Virginia Company of London declared bankruptcy and royal control was established. Well, how could they establish royal control? That had to come from the crown. So it says a governor and assembly appointed by the king would rule the colony until 1776. So listen to how colonies and corporate is being defined. It says the British colonies of North America were founded as either corporate colonies or as proprietary colonies. Corporate colonies had a charter that the English monarch granted to stakeholders, but they were essentially governed by the monarch. King, King James I granted corporate charters for the settlement of Virginia and Massachusetts. The charter stipulated that the king appoint the colonial governor who arrived in America with a royal commission and a set of instructions from the British Board of Trade. Each colony would have its own legislator made up of a crown appointed council and an elected assembly. The assembly was empowered to pass laws that had to be approved by the royal government of England before they could go into effect. Now this information is very important because it's important to know what is at the root of a thing. So now let's listen to what it says about human labor. It says life in the new world was hard for the immigrants. Colonists realized that they needed cheap labor to help work the land indentured servants solved that problem. The Virginia Company of London started this system where poor white workers could gain free passage to the new world in exchange for working. Now let's separate them from the group they brought over and gave them 50 acres. So who do you think these poor white workers would be working for? It says their contracts lasted four to seven years and were harsh and restrictive. Contracts could be extended if they tried to run away or if a woman became pregnant. Once their contract expired, they were given a freedom package. This package could include, could include 25 acres of land, clothes, and a year's worth of supplies. Very few indentured servants became elite members of colonial society. Don't miss that. So the first Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619. They were known as the 20 and odd. They were brought to Jamestown on board the English warship White Lion. The 20 Africans were captives that were removed from a Portuguese slave ship, the San Juan Bastista. The Portuguese ship was on its way to deliver the Africans to Mexico. 
At that time in Jamestown, there were no slave laws, and African captives were treated like indentured servants and given the same opportunities for freedom as white. By the mid-1600s, the tobacco economy had grown tremendously as demand grew. So did the cost of indentured servants. Slavery quickly replaced indentured servitude as the preferred source of human labor. Why? It was free. Landowners were threatened by the prospect of newly freed servants demanding land. Enslaved Africans were viewed as a more profitable and renewable source of labor. So this is when they created the division. So in 1661, Virginia formally recognized slavery by law. White indentured servants were forbidden from running away with a black servant. In 1662, Virginia passed a law that stated children would be free or bonded based on the status of the mother. This meant that a child born to an enslaved woman would also be enslaved, making slavery hereditary. By 1705, the Virginia General Assembly declared that all those not born into Christianity in their native land would be enslaved for life. This is the key point. The white indentured servants that they brought over here were considered Christians. Back then, Christianity meant white Europeans, Protestants. They were under the label Christians, quote unquote Christians. Those that they brought in from the continent of Africa could not lay claim to that role. It didn't matter if they were baptized and they converted to Christianity. The key point is they were not white. Now let's dig a little deeper into the plantation system. This is from National Geographic. So this article describes the plantation system in America as an instrument of British colonialism characterized by social and political inequality. It links the agricultural prosperity of the South with the domination by wealthy aristocrats and the exploitation of slave labor. Now listen to this part because you're going to see how they invented whiteness. It says the settlements required a large number of laborers to sustain them because these crops required large areas of land. The plantations grew in size and in turn, more labor was required to work on the plantations. Plantation labor shifted away from indentured servitude and more towards slavery by the late 1600s. Obtaining indentured servants became more difficult as more economic opportunities became available to them. So listen, wealthy landowners 
also made purchasing land more difficult for former indentured servants. This sharpened class divisions as a small number of people owned larger and larger plantations. Wealthy landowners got wealthier and the use of slave labor increased. This led to uprisings and skirmishes like Bacon's Rebellion, with impoverished black and white people joining forces against the wealthy. And you know they couldn't have that. So what did they do? In response, customs changed and laws were passed to elevate the status of poor white people above all black people. Let that sink in. This new class acted as a buffer to protect the wealthy and black people in the British American colonies were further oppressed. People of African descent were forced into a permanent underclass. They elevated the status of poor white people. Why? To protect their own interests. They made these people believe that they were a special class of people simply because they had white skin and then they weaponized whiteness against us. A system based on that lie was created to keep our people in a state of poverty and to create an inferiority complex. This system was then enforced by law and backed up by the Christian church. But when it's all said and done, folks, you're going to find out that it wasn't about color at all. It's about a bloodline. All right, we will wrap up with these verses from Ezekiel 37. This chapter is talking about the dry bones. It's talking about the descendants of Israel. It's a depiction of resurrection. Listen as I read verses 26 through 28. The Most High is speaking. And he says, he will make a covenant of peace with them, Israel. He says, it will be an everlasting covenant. He says, I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. If he's making an everlasting covenant with his people, how is it possible for them to be replaced? It's not. It goes on to say, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their most high, he says. They shall be my people. Listen to this. The nations also will know that I, the most high Yah, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So we have a covenant. He's given us an everlasting covenant. Not only that, we have a promise. The dry bones will live again. For those involved in our enslavement and benefited from it, what do you have? 
you will not be able to fall back on a color. You've built your case on lies. They told you that we were cursed because of the curse of Ham. They told you that black skin was a curse. They used religion against us. All lies that will be thrown out in the courts of heaven. This series is serving a purpose. We are presenting the evidence to the righteous judge. We'll talk more about that in the live this coming Wednesday. So be sure to join me for that. But for European Americans that fell for the lies, you're going to come up short. I hate to tell you, but the elite fed you lies. You actually thought a skin color made you superior. For us, it's about covenant. We're building our case on the truth of the Most High's word, and it cannot return unto him void. So again, join me on the live for more on that. But if this message has been a blessing to you, please remember to hit the like, share it, and we normally upload on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. You're also welcome to subscribe if you have not already done so. Until next time, be blessed, family.